News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender Show. I want to welcome to the program Ben Weingarten. He is, uh, well, he's a very versatile writer. He's all over the place. He's a deputy editor at Real Clear Investigations, senior contributor at The Federalist. He writes columns for Newsweek and the... Uh, uh, is okay, Ben. You got to tell me: is it the Epoch or Epoch Times? I have heard it both ways. Do you know? I, I usually go with Epoch, but Epoch Times. All right. And the Claremont Institute. You're a fellow there, so welcome to the program. Uh, your latest piece at RealClearInvestigations.com is on ESG. Uh, so I guess maybe we should start with the explainer. What is ESG? What does it stand for? Well, thanks for having me. And yeah, this is one of the interesting things: is that it's very rarely clearly defined, and and maybe that's by design. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Principles. And typically when this is used in an investment context, it's with folks on Wall Street talking about how dedicated companies are to principles like net zero in terms of carbon dioxide emissions on the environmental side, or on the social and governance side, things like, for example, uh, how diverse your corporate board is. Uh, what issues does a company get out in front of in the political sphere, typically from a progressive direction? So in some ways, I think this should be thought of as the equivalent of, you know, why is diversity, equity, and inclusion now a focus of every single company? It's because of ESG. And in some ways, it would sort of be like the analog in the educational sphere to CRT, a case could be made. But in any event, this is usually, this focus on ESG, particularly on Wall Street, has usually transformed corporate America. It's been a driving force behind what many people recognize to be uh, the advent and the development of woke capital in this country. And it is now something that's being increasingly embraced by federal government, including the SEC and the Department of Labor, something, again, that major Wall Street money managers are pushing. And then, of course, within corporate America itself, many high-level executives at name-brand corporations have embraced this as well. And so what I do in this piece of Real Core Investigations is talk about the nascent pushback against this Goliath type of effort uh, on behalf of all of these powerful forces to essentially impose progressivism under the guise of ESG, via corporate America over the government. So I'm sure you know Andy Puzder, the uh, former Carl's Jr. Uh, executive. He's been fighting on this stuff a lot. I say, uh, he, I actually was at a conference a couple of months ago and chatted with him a bit about this very thing. And I, got, I have to admit, until about two months ago, I was completely unaware that this stuff was happening, did not understand these big investment firms that uh, that are sort of pushing this, BlackRock being the big one, right? Uh, and, and there were two others, Vanguard, I believe, and who's the third? And State Street. Those are kind of the three biggest money managers in the country and, as, and in the world. And what we detail is that they own collectively for the average S&P 500 major corporation, 22% of the shares of those corporations. And with that, we own immense power. All right. So for folks who aren't aware, like how that actually works in a in a business setting, walk us through like we'll just pick an example, we'll say BlackRock and the guy who's in charge of that. He seems to be 
sort of the 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 big one, right? Uh, Fink is his name of all names, right? Larry Fink, I believe. Um, and so he's uh, so like walk us through how does he actually influence uh, how uh, boards direct their businesses to operate, and then what impact does that have downstream on on shareholders? Sure, and shareholders, and really, and you, and any of your listeners who are either in your personal portfolios invested in an ETF, let's say, that's managed by BlackRock or in your 401ks or retirement plans. Uh, if BlackRock or State Street or Vanguard is managing the funds that you're invested in, this has impact on everyone, uh, and including, of course, in the political context of how these companies operate. But really, the, the immense power of, of a BlackRock, for example, and that's sort of the focus of the story on the Goliath side of the David versus Goliath equation, BlackRock manages over $10 trillion in assets. And that means that when you invest in a uh, iShares ETF, any kind of ETF covering a certain sector of the economy or mimicking an index, you invest via BlackRock. BlackRock, though, really owns the shares of the companies within a given index. Consequently, as I noted, because they're managing so much money, they, in effect, are the largest shareholders in many cases in a number of companies. And being one of the largest shareholders within that companies, that gives them a number of levers of power that they can pull to imp- impose their views on management. And so let's take a concrete example of this, for example. ExxonMobil, there was an activist investor group so uh, a fund who owned a really small piece of Exxon, about 0.02%. There are 12 members of the corporate board at Exxon. This activist investor put up several alternative board members that they wanted to basically push green initiatives within Exxon, obviously a massive oil energy company. This 0.02% investor, obviously in a vote for these board seats, could not win. They didn't have enough shares to make over the 50% threshold to carry their slate of board members. But they got BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street on board, and that essentially led to this cascading effect where they were able to generate more than 50% of the shareholders to go and vote against the management of the company and put three of 12 board members on that board who were green devoted. This is one way, very concrete way, that by controlling the board, you can control the direction of a company and essentially impose your views on it. But there are many other ways that a BlackRock can move the marketplace as well. One thing is just pushing for ESG. BlackRock develops funds that are ESG-focused. When they do that as a massive player in the market, of course, there's a copycat effect. Mm -hmm. Other financial institutions are going to do that too. And so, in effect, that becomes an endorsement of ESG, brings more money focused into it. And of course, these banks charge a premium for managing these portfolios of ESG-focused companies, you know, green-friendly companies, progressive-oriented companies. Another lever of power that they can pull is they can band together in these groups that advocate to management directly and tell them, essentially, you ought to really get on board with the net neutrality agenda. And last but not least, and there are other factors as well here, but they can also divest from companies that don't comport with their wishes. So, for example, BlackRock, in the portfolios it manages on behalf of individuals and institutions, said we are getting out of the thermal coal business. 
we are going to divest from any company that generates a substantial amount of revenues from thermal coal. And they dumped $500 million worth of assets on the marketplace. That has a real impact on the marketplace. It's also a signal to many of the other players in the financial sphere. If BlackRock's doing this, we may have to get out of this as well. And last but not least, of course, they can lobby the federal government. And in BlackRock's case, many of its senior executives have moved into governmental positions, including under the Biden administration. They've lobbied for regulations that are in tandem with their views on environmentalism, for example. So they have a whole array of levers and pick and pull to impact the marketplace, really the economy and the U.S. writ large, uh, at an outsized level. And this is seen by critics of woke capital as sort of an end run around democracy when you have companies that use their economic power to impose political ends that the politicians themselves aren't doing. The name of the piece is called It's Conservative David versus the Woke Corporate Green Giant, RealClearInvestigations.com, written by Ben Weingarten. You can also read him at BenWeingarten.com as well. As you can tell, uh, there's a lot of angles to this, and he, uh, uh, Ben, you fleshed it all out. It's a very lengthy piece, but if you want to know what ESG is about and what's happening and the pushback that's, that's now starting, it's a great read. Uh, thanks for your time, Ben. I do appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Pete. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. <laughs> All right, uh, Ben Weingarten, thanks so much again for uh, joining me on the program. I almost was going to start asking him about the Sussman trial. I am going to get to that, by the way. I was going to get to it earlier, but there have been some developments today. So I want to I want to catch up on what's been going on this morning because this one seems to be pretty, pretty big, pretty big uh, development. So I'll get to that. First, let me uh, go over some of the some more of the details out of the Weingarten piece, which I highly recommend you read realclearinvestigations.com. I so if you're like me, you got, you know, your money in a 401k or an IRA and you like I don't monitor this stuff. I sat down with my financial guy uh, and I, you know, touch base with him every year or if, like he'll call me if there's some something going on in the market and uh, he wants to, you know, move money or whatever, but I I don't I'm not I'm not at an age where I need to be sort of monitoring it all and I'm a little bit probably, you know, more aggressive because I'm the age I am and I have time if I lose money I can recoup some of it. Now as you get closer to retirement, you don't you, you don't have the luxury. So you're going to be you should be more conservative and try to protect the assets, right? Different strategies. Anyway, um I have noticed though that I started seeing some of these automated emails that start coming through, you know, when you're investing, you put your money into a, a management fund or whatever, and you start seeing BlackRock and Vanguard. And now I'm going to have to call my guy and be like, I don't know if I want to continue in these, uh, inside these product lines. I don't want these guys voting for me. I don't want them being my mouthpiece. I don't want them voting my shares, using my money to vote my shares for stuff I disagree with. So uh, he does mention in his piece, there is uh, there is now an Ohio-based investment firm called Strive Asset Management, Strive. And according to the press release announcing the money manager's launch, it aims to take on BlackRock and its peers, decrying their invocation of stakeholder capitalism to justify using clients' funds to exercise 
decisive influence over nearly every U.S. public company to advance political ideologies that many of their clients disagree with. This, this is the natural destination. Where we were headed, you remember years ago, I'm old enough to remember, when the millennials were coming up, close your ears, Bernie, this is not an indictment on all millennials, hashtag not all millennials, um, but when they were coming up, they were, they were really looking, you know, to buy products and patronize businesses that they agree with, you know, stuff like that. And it became sort of this uh, conventional wisdom that became the standard. Well, why did those millennials adopt that position? Why did so many younger people look for some sort of social mission behind the businesses that they wanted to buy, you know, a pack of crackers from? What, why? Yeah, they probably aren't eating crackers. All right. Soy lattes, right? Okay. Soy latte. Like, what's your social mission before I purchase this soy latte? Well, they were told that. By whom? This gets to what we talked about yesterday. Education is not a value-less enterprise, right? Somebody along the line taught those kids that you need to take very seriously a business's social posture before you give them any money. I'm not arguing you should or shouldn't, by the way. I'm a lowercase l libertarian. You will rarely hear me ever tell you that you should do something, except, of course, patronize the advertisers that help make the show possible. But other than that, right? Other than that, I'm not telling you you should or shouldn't do that. If you want to go through and check every single company's social mission statement before you buy a single thing from them, you go right ahead and do it. But if you're going to be voting my shares, screw you, man. You don't get to vote my shares for stuff you want. Oh, and by the way, these policies once adopted and uh, implemented at the corporate level, they lead to a reduction in the returns on the investment that I have made. So you're taking my money, you're voting my shares for things that I disagree with, and as an added bonus, I get less profit back. Yeah, that's, that's wrong. That is unethical. That's unethical. And this is now, I mean, this has been the way things have been operating apparently for a while. I am sort of new to the game and understanding what's been going on. So I do apologize for that. But I'm a pretty quick study. I'm a pretty quick study. Big asset managers like BlackRock. Vote on resolutions at the corporate board level on behalf of millions of retirees, as well as other clients whose nest eggs, however small, however remotely, are entrusted with the firm. Historically, the asset managers would abstain. They would not vote. But in 2018, consistent with Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, consistent with his messaging, BlackRock updated proxy voting guidance to suggest that it would increasingly vote its conscience. Its conscience. First off, where are all of the, the lefties who are like, corporations aren't people? Whose conscience are you voting? 
you're managing the money. That doesn't rob me of my ability to uh, influence, you know, the votes via my conscience. Ben Weingarten, writing at Real Clear Investigations, he mentioned this ExxonMobil story. This was recent. This was 2021. BlackRock took this vote. It's been seen as the most influential of all. Activist investor, engine number one, owned 0.02% of ExxonMobil, nominated several directors to ExxonMobil's board in a bid to get the company to reduce its carbon footprint. Uh, Reportedly spending almost as much on its proxy fight with Exxon as the value of its holdings, the fund won three seats on the Exxon 12-member board. It prevailed despite its small position because it won the backing of Exxon's three largest shareholders, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. I mentioned Andy Puzder earlier, uh, the uh, former CEO of Carl's Jr., he talked about this case at uh, the the Liberty Conference the John Locke Foundation put on a couple months back up in Raleigh, and I was uh, and I went to his presentation. He had a PowerPoint on all this stuff, and so you know it's true. But no, I'm kidding. But no, it was a very well put together uh, presentation, and he talked about this case. And BlackRock essentially extorted Exxon into getting these people onto the board. By saying they would start divesting, ExxonMobil's shares started tanking, and that's how this little engine number one took three of the 12 seats on their board. BlackRock also, he mentioned, divests in companies. Um, What else do they do? They have $18 trillion, or one-third of funds under professional management, are now being invested using the ESG and related criteria. Again, ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. Basically, it judges companies based on their devotion to achieving environmental goals, social goals, and governance goals, right? And I know this is going to come as a surprise. All of those goals all tack in one direction, politically speaking. And it's not to the right. It's not to the right. It is. It has been compared to the social credit score mechanism that China has been implementing. There are some efforts um, to fight back against this. Uh, this is what the thrust of his piece is about. Some of these, um, the backlash against corporate America going woke. There are a record number of conservative shareholder proposals now submitted to companies during this year's annual corporate meeting season. There are about uh, some 48 of them as late as April. 48. That's pretty good, right? 48. However, coming from the other direction, progressive proposals, uh, there are about 500 plus of those. This is the fight. One of the fights. One of the participants in the battle, the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. Very ALEC. That's the left boogeyman. ALEC is responsible for everything. 
Um, basically, ALEC is it's American Legislative Exchange Council. They they help craft limited government, deregulatory types of policies that they then shop around to state legislatures who take that and use it as a template uh, to craft their own state legislation. And uh, this is uh, pretty normal, by the way, uh, on the left. They do this all the time. But when the right does it, it's it's different. It's different when we do it. Okay. Uh, they have proposed that states enact a state government employee retirement protection act to shield pensioners, quote, from politically driven investment strategies. See, this has the potential to get really bad very quickly because you've got these decisions being made based on malleable criteria, let's call it. It's not about maximizing the return for the investor. Now, for you in a 401k, uh, that that impact is going to be limited to just you, right? If you wanted to go out and make these decisions, like I'm only going to in, invest in companies that are all about puppies and babies, right? Something like that. You're free to do that. And if you make some bad picks or you hire a, a management company and they make bad picks based on your recommendations or your desires, right? Then that's that's on you. The impact is is contained to your portfolio. That's a whole different scenario than a retirement fund for all the state employees. Right? That's a massive amount of money. That's a huge number of people, retirees that are counting on a certain return on that investment. And when the management company starts putting your money, their money, or in this case, taxpayer money that went into the pension system, and they start siphoning that out and sticking it into these ESG types of uh, programs and start using that money as leverage, which then creates problems for the companies because now like ExxonMobil, right? They just had three people stuck onto their board. They now have to make decisions that they might not otherwise have made. And now they have to make these different decisions. And now that reduces the bottom line, which means what? The pensions that all the retirees are counting on. Sorry, you're not going to have as much money, which then requires what? Bailouts, bailouts with more taxpayer money. See what I mean? This has the potential to get very bad very quickly. Also from the story, the anti-woke backlash comes in response to a years-long surge in progressive activism in corporate America regarding issues ranging from guns and abortion to immigration, election integrity, and criminal justice. Companies have bowed to the prevailing winds. He says a watershed moment came in 2019 when the prominent and powerful business roundtable redefined the purpose of a corporation, elevating vaguely defined stakeholders in society at large over traditional stock shareholders. This is what I talked about earlier, the manipulation of the language, the twisting and the contorting of words that used to mean one thing that are now expanded out to mean other things, these stakeholders. So a stakeholder isn't actually somebody with a stake in the company. It's just somebody who has an opinion. That's what that's what it means. Someone who has an opinion about a particular company. And they apparently now get influence over board decisions, company decisions, and profits 
via BlackRock Vanguard and State Street. And where did this all originate? Where it always does. The universities. The universities went through their own awakening, and that has prompted a lot of the uh, the people who have come through those universities. They now populate positions of power because they got the credentials because that's what universities are about nowadays. You get the credential, you get the gig, and now you get to infect another sector of our society. So, yeah, I'm sure that I know I'm I'm just a radio host. I'm sure it'll all work out. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. The criticism from the anti-woke camp, it's pretty, I I find it to be persuasive and compelling. Uh, There are a number of lines of attack against these uh, money management companies like BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, that have been pushing this ESG cancer into businesses and boardrooms all over uh, the country, using other people's money to do it. Here's one criticism. According to Ben Weingarten's piece at Real Clear Investigations, one is that a uh, political workplace undermines civil society. Right. You're injecting politics into a workplace. And in so doing, and especially nowadays where people's identity is so wrapped up in their politics, where and, and therefore any kind of disagreement about your politics is perceived as an attack on the self, on the person, on your identity. And by injecting that garbage into the workplace, now you are dividing. You're dividing people. There's an old saying, I I say it a lot different, uh, usually in a political context, when you define, you divide. Right? It's very easy if everyone's like, hey, let's unite under the banner of freedom. Yay, everybody likes freedom. Who who hates freedom? Or apple pie. I guess there are some people that don't like apple pie. So maybe that's not a great example. But you, you find something that everybody loves. Babies. Everyone loves babies, except for Planned Parenthood. I mean, of course, right? But that's... Sorry. Cheap shot. I know. But I take them. So everybody unites under one big banner. But then when you start to define what it is that you mean, when you say, yay, we love freedom... Okay, well, what kinds of freedom? Like, all right, well, I want to be free to smoke all the weed that I can find. And some other folks will say, well, no, that I, I, don't, I don't think you should have the freedom to do that, right? And now you start dividing. That's just one example. Well, when you inject this stuff into the corporate setting, into a business setting, and people are now trotting out their political persuasions and policy preferences, you're going to end up with disagreements, Because you're defining things that are outside the proper purview of the company. You are there to do a job. You are there, right, to work. You are there to create value, to make a product or provide a service. That is the social mission. Because providing that good or service to people who willingly want it and voluntarily then purchase your good or service... Right? You are doing a good thing for the society. You are generating wealth and happiness. That's a good thing. 
That creates a stable society, and it builds trust. And that's what our free society really, really needs. You cannot operate a civil society without trust. You can't. Think about that. If nobody, if you're walking down the street and you think everybody around you could rat you out to some authority figure that's then going to exact some sort of a penalty, how do you think you'd start interacting with everybody around you? Well, if you work in the schools, you already know because you're in that situation. Seriously, like this is and this is what happens inside the workplace. This is why uh, somebody raised this question a couple uh, about a year or so ago. They have any of these uh, anti-racism lectures and and um, and workshops that people are forced to go through at their uh, at at their workplace. Ha- have they ever actually found the racists? Have they found the racism? Have they rooted it out? Did it happen? Where are the success stories? Seriously. Does anybody sit down for one of these workshops about white fragility and come away thinking, you know what? We we conquered white fragility and racism. We did it. Good job, us. Does it ever happen? Why not? At some point, shouldn't you be asking for some performance metrics for the consultants that charge you all the money to come and root out the racists? In fact, what they find, Harvard itself, Harvard, one of the pioneers with this uh, type of garbage, Harvard itself found that after those types of workshops, things are worse. And it makes some bit of sense, doesn't it? Because if you get forced to sit through one of these workshops and they say, hey, you need to listen to this person call you a racist, and then when you object, well, that's just proof that you're a fragile racist and you're still a racist— um, what do you think happens after the consultant leaves and the workshop's over and the company gets the little uh, smear of blood to put over the, the doorway to let all of the Church of Wokeism know that we're okay? We, we bought our indulgence. What do you think happens among the employees, though? There, there's a whisper campaign going on, isn't there? Oh, watch out for that. Yeah. Brenda over there... She, she was a racist. Remember what happened with that consultant? Yeah, that consultant said she was a fragile racist. Do you think that breeds a, a good working environment? 